Good morning. It's Monday, November 16th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. A new coronavirus vaccine is nearly 95% effective in preventing COVID-19. That's according to its maker, Moderna. This finding is the result of a large-scale phase three trial. The Massachusetts-based biotech company plans to apply for emergency authorization with the FDA and, if everything goes according to plan, Moderna could distribute 20 million doses throughout the U.S. by the end of the year. It plans to distribute up to 1 billion more doses in 2021. This comes on the heels of last week's news from Pfizer, which announced similarly positive results from its vaccine. But while hope is in sight, the pandemic is raging here in the U.S. For frontline workers, help cannot come fast enough. Exhausted. Running on fear. The sense that this is all going to collapse. This is how some healthcare workers told The Atlantic they're feeling about the pandemic. We've had more positive COVID-19 cases a day than ever before. Hospitals across the U.S. are filling up fast. And as we race towards Thanksgiving, healthcare workers are running on fumes. One nurse told The Atlantic's Ed Young, To protect yourself, you just shut down. You get to the point when you realize that you've become a machine. The way that Young puts it, healthcare workers are the most valuable resource we have right now to fight COVID-19. And they've learned a lot this year about the disease, about possible therapeutics, and how to best treat patients, which is why we are seeing lower death rates now than we were earlier in the year. But Young writes, nurses and doctors are burnt out. And as hospitals become more flooded with patients, there won't be enough doctors and nurses to care for all of us who might get infected. Young spoke with Nathan Hatton. He's a pulmonary specialist in Utah. That state is reporting around 2,500 daily coronavirus cases. And Hatton told The Atlantic, the ICU where he works has double the number of patients it normally has. His shifts are typically between 12 and 24 hours. But since the virus reached his hospital, he's been working as long as 36 hours. Iowa is in even worse shape than Utah. Iowa is now seeing more than 3,600 confirmed COVID-19 cases a day. One nurse there in Iowa, Whitney Neville, says treating patients was manageable over the summer, but now the workload is overwhelming. She said recently they had 25 patients admitted into the emergency department, but there was no one to care for those patients. She tells Young that the system has no slack left. According to an infectious disease doctor at the University of Iowa, the state is completely out of staff beds, and the worst is yet to come. He says, there's no question the healthcare system in Iowa is going to collapse. And yet the state's bars, restaurants, and schools are still open. A mask is only required for gatherings of 25 people or more. Across the country, this is what we're hearing. Healthcare workers are exhausted. There's the emotional exhaustion that comes with seeing so many people die, the physical toll on your body of working so hard and for so long, and the psychological weight of being on the front lines at work and still hearing so many people say that COVID-19 doesn't exist or is being overblown. Yang offers this for comparison. In 2003, there was a SARS outbreak in Toronto. That outbreak lasted four months. But the long-term impact on healthcare workers lingered far longer. 
Two years later, healthcare workers were still showing high levels of burnout and post-traumatic stress. That was only a four-month outbreak. By comparison, the U.S. has already been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic for more than twice as long. Colleges and universities across the country are COVID-19 hotspots. Many of them have had to cancel in-person classes and move to online learning soon after they welcomed students to campus. But Rice University is a standout. Back in March, the Texas school had to cancel in-person classes after a faculty member tested positive. But this fall, Rice has been able to prevent a major spread of the coronavirus on its campus by putting enforcement of public health rules into the hands of students. That's a big deal, because according to the New York Times data tracker, Texas recorded the most coronavirus cases on college and university campuses in the U.S. Rice University, on the other hand, has one of the lowest COVID-19 infection rates of any Texas school. It has 7,500 students, yet since August, the university confirmed just 77 positive cases of COVID-19. Peter Hawley writes about this at Texas Monthly, and he explains Rice's strategy is based on the idea that students have the most to lose right now, so they should be the enforcers. And this means if you see someone break the rules on campus, you know, not wearing a mask or gathering when they shouldn't be, you report them. You can submit a tip anonymously online. You can even report someone based on pictures they're posting on social media. Anyone who violates the rules has to appear in front of a student-run court called the COVID Community Court, CCC. And that court decides what the punishment should be, whether it's writing an apology letter to other students or a research paper on public health or even having them do community service. Over the past few months, the COVID court has heard dozens of cases. A lot of students told Texas Monthly, if you're not doing anything wrong, you have nothing to hide. The rules are vital to keeping everyone safe, but others don't agree. Some feel this model is making people on a campus paranoid, worried about constant surveillance and punishment. One student, Julian Braxton, said he feels uneasy on campus, that some of his classmates feel isolated, afraid of making a mistake. He says others are just seeking out infractions. Another student said this model is turning students against one another. And Duarte, the reporter on the story, Peter Holly, had his own Big Brother's watching experience while walking around Rice's campus. He was looking to interview students and talking to some people, and he got a phone call from someone who worked at the university. And that person told him that he wasn't authorized to be on campus and that he had to leave. He asked them how they knew he was there, and apparently someone reported him. This is a big day for baseball. That's right. Today is the day that the Miami Marlins will officially introduce their newest general manager, Kim Ang. She is the first woman GM in Major League Baseball. In fact, the first in all of men's sports in North America. Ang has been working in baseball for more than 30 years. She's been assistant GM for the Dodgers and the Yankees, where she was part of three World Series championships. She also served as Senior Vice President of Operations for MLB, and in 2015, she was also on Forbes' list of most influential women in sports and most influential minorities in sports. 
Aang joins a pretty diverse executive team at the Marlins. Derek Jeter is the team's CEO and part owner. He's biracial, and he's known for prioritizing diversity in his hiring practices. The team's COO is a woman, Caroline O'Connor. And the outgoing team president, Michael Hill, is one of very few Black front office managers in baseball. Haley Alvarez, the assistant director of scouting for the Oakland Athletics, told the Washington Post, Ang's hire as general manager opens up new doors for women in the sport. The Miami Herald reports on Ang's background and rise. She was born in Indianapolis, but raised in New York City. And as a kid, one of her favorite players was Don Mattingly. Back then, he played for the Yankees. He's now the Marlins manager. Well, now she's his boss. So what are you doing for Thanksgiving? As we all figure out our holiday plans, turkey farmers are feeling a little uneasy. Yeah, this is the busiest time of year for the nation's 2,500 turkey farmers. But now lots of them are wondering, are people going to buy as many turkeys as they normally would? Or will smaller gatherings mean that people want smaller birds? Vox spoke with a turkey farmer in Minnesota who produces four to five million pounds of turkey each year. He says the pandemic is making this year tough. His biggest customers are schools, cruise ships, and the military. And a lot of those orders just stopped. So his turkeys ended up in a freezer. And it's not just demand that's gone down. COVID-19 outbreaks at processing plants went up too. So keeping workers healthy was also a challenge. But this farmer says his industry has always had to be nimble. They've lived through bird flu. They've seen families of consumers get smaller over the decades, which means smaller turkeys. They've had to get creative about marketing the whole bird by promoting turkey bacon and turkey burgers. He tells Vox he's not too worried. He's hoping most people will still buy a turkey this Thanksgiving for the sake of normalcy. And besides, who doesn't like leftovers? You can find all those stories and more on the Apple News app. And we have a question for parents out there. We're working on an upcoming show about how the pandemic is impacting your relationships. And we want to know... Have you or your partner had to stop working to prioritize childcare during the pandemic? Or has the pandemic made you closer to your kids? We want to hear your stories. Use your phone to record a voice memo and send it to us at applenewstoday at apple.com. That's applenewstoday, all one word, at apple.com. Make sure you say your name and tell us where you're from. And we may use your recording on one of our upcoming shows. And thank you so much for doing that. We'll talk with you again tomorrow.